Good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning to um, open God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jesus is Better, chapter 9. Oh, sorry, that's the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. You know, the titles of the books of the Bible are not actually part of the the inspired text. They were made later by, um, by translators and by people that study the Bible. In the Old Testament, the books of the Bible get their names from the, in English from, often from the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and sometimes they just transliterate Greek words. Our small group is studying the book of Deuteronomy, and right now um, that book is, um, in, our, in our Bible, Deuteronomy comes from the Greek word deutero and nomos for second law, uh, because it was the second time that Moses gave the law. Uh, the New Testament epistles are often named after the people that get the letter. But I think that if um, the New Testament Bible names were given by those Septuagint translators, they might have come up with other names. Like First Timothy might be called How to Do Church. Colossians might be called Cosmic Jesus. First Corinthians might be called, Hey, Knock It Off and Love Each Other. <laughs> and the book of Hebrews certainly would have been called Jesus is Better. The theme of this book in every way is Jesus is better. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is the way to a better covenant. Jesus is better. So today we're going to be looking in the book of Jesus is better, chapter 9, and we're going to look at the entire chapter today. In this chapter of Jesus is better, we're going to see that he's in a better place. He has a better covenant and he makes a better way to God. He's in a better place, he has a better covenant, and he makes a better way to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word uh, that proclaims greatly that Jesus is better. May we see how great Jesus is, and may we proclaim that with our words and with our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so in the first 10 verses of this passage, we have a prelude to the author's point uh, describing the Old Covenant. Look at it together, first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstands and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So in verses 1 through 5 here, we see the description of the Old Covenant place. And interestingly here, the author doesn't talk about the temple. 
um, the thing that the original hearers would have been more familiar with. But rather, he talks about the tabernacle. See, the temple, depending on when this epistle was written, was either still standing in Jerusalem just, just then, and there were still Levitical priests in the temple, or it had been just after it had been destroyed, uh, but it would be in recent memory. No one from this era had ever seen the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that first tent of meeting that God commanded Moses to build in Exodus. God made him all, gave him all the directions, right down to the size of the fabric panels that would make up the tent, what they'd be made of, and, and how he would hang them. And the purpose of the tabernacle was to have a traveling tent, a place for God to be with his people in the wilderness and as they entered the promised land. And the tabernacle was always temporary. See, long after they'd settled in the land, in 2 Samuel 7, David realizes he's in this beautiful palace to live in, but the ark is still in a tent. And that doesn't seem right to him. So he wants to make a house for God. But God corrects him and says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, God promises that that David's not going to make God a house, but God is going to make David a house. Not a physical house, but a dynasty of kings that would rule over Israel forever. He says, continuing there in 2 Samuel, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Well, David hears this promise from God and decides to follow that promise. He still thinks that it's his descendant that's going to build a physical building for God. So so David starts gathering all the materials that are going to be needed so that his son Solomon can build that temple. And Solomon would build this magnificent wonder of the ancient world, this temple with riches beyond measure. But that's not the house that God had promised David. See, God promised an enduring kingdom and an everlasting throne. It was not going to be a physical building. It was going to be an eternal kingship. And certainly that wasn't Solomon. He died, and his sons died, and his son died after him. And finally, the kings of the world would come against Israel and pick away at this magnificent temple. Finally, in 2 Chronicles 36, we hear the ending of that temple. Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. See, Solomon's temple, that physical building, was not the promised house of God. There was a better house to be built. And that just illustrates things of this earth are temporary. The tabernacle was made to be temporary. 
it has its remembrance of history in the temporary place there, the places where they'd been. There was the manna and the Aaron, Aaron's staff that would, was budded and the stone tablets. All of those things were remnants of history, of their journey, of the past, but it was temporary. Not only was it a temporary place, but the activities there were temporary. The priest had to go in every year. They had to make sacrifices every year. He says this temporary activity had a purpose in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. That place was temporary. The activity was temporary. And not only that, but it had to be removed so that the real and permanent thing could come in. Have you ever said this phrase, out with the old and in with the new? You can't hold on to the old things when you're trying to put in something new. A few months ago, Kim and I decided it was time for some new phones. And uh, so we were going to change our cell phone carrier. We wanted to get these new phones, and the best way to do that is to pit the phone companies against each other and get a free deal. So we went to one of those switch and get a free phone deals. And we went in to get our new phone, and we had to switch the number over. It took what seemed like forever to get that number switched over, but when you finally did, we had new phones. But until we made that switch, we were still with the old phone company. You can't have the old and the new. We had to make the switch. The tabernacle and all that it entailed is like the old phone company. Sure, it wants to keep you around. It's going to keep working, but it wants to, and it wants to keep your business. I had to have a long talk with the people at AT&T before they finally let me go. And, uh, and the tabernacle was just like that. It wanted to keep them around. But the truth of the matter is, as Michael showed us last week, the old covenant is just that. It's old. It's obsolete. It's worn out. It's not going to work anymore. We need to get on the new plan. As long as that old tabernacle was in place, the new one couldn't take effect. Hebrews says it was a symbol, but it only dealt with the external. Now, there's an important thing I want us to understand here about salvation in the Old Testament. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. It has never been by the works you could do. God has never saved someone because of how good they were. He doesn't save by works. A person was in a right relationship with God in the Old Testament by believing God. And when they believed God, then they did the works of the law to show that they believed God. But they had to believe him. It has always been by grace through faith. And they demonstrate that faith in the Old Testament by keeping the law. An old, a person in the Old Testament, they believed God, they kept the law, but the law didn't save. A person under the, under the Old Covenant kept the law, but like Hebrews 9.10 says, the law only dealt with matters of food and drink and washings. There was nothing salvific about it. And it was temporary until the new order came. Literally, verse 10 reads, until the time of setting things right. The Old Covenant was good, but not sufficient. It wasn't complete. It wasn't right. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7.12 says, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. 
so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. See, the old covenant wasn't bad. It was just incomplete. It could only deal with the outward behaviors. An ancient Israelite living under that old covenant certainly could do all of the things that the law required. They could make every sacrifice. They could go through every ritual prayer. They could do everything right down to the letter. But that wouldn't save them. That was just a shadow. It was just a guide. It was temporary. Remember when the rich young man came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10? He says, teacher, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. And Jesus doesn't dispute that with him. He doesn't say, oh, no, you didn't. But the rich young ruler was, had his heart far from God. He was keeping the letter of the law, but he was clinging to the ritual remembrance, the washings and the things of food and drink, and not seeing them as temporary. Jesus said to him, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. See, Jesus was inviting him into this new covenant, this new relationship with God, based on him, based on his relationship with Jesus, not following the old ritual. And that man was deeply dismayed, the Bible says, and went away grieving, because, the Bible says, he owned much property. He was more interested in what he had than what he could have in Jesus. As long as the old was there in his heart, the new couldn't come in. But the author of Hebrews says, now Christ has come. The old was all well and good, but it needs to clear out because Christ is here and he is better. Jesus is better. Verses 11 through 14, Jesus comes to a better place. Verse 11, but when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and uh, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So the place here that Jesus is talking about is the heavenly tabernacle, not the copy of the place on earth, but the real deal, the tent not made with human hands and not of this creation. See, there's a reality beyond the created world, the reality of perfect communion with God. The perfect reality was out of reach, not even attainable, and certainly the, the copy was never going to get us there, as good as it was. I've got here a matchbox car, beautiful little yellow sports car. I loved playing with these when I was a kid. We'd go to the top of the hill of my neighbor's driveway and we'd race them down the hill to see who could get there the fastest. I'm sure this little car would have cost me every bit of my allowance. It was great. But I'll tell you, when I turned 16 and I could drive, I did not want this Matchbox car anymore. No, that wasn't going to get me where, my, where I wanted to go with my friends. I wanted the real deal. See, there is a reality beyond the old tabernacle that... Uh, just couldn't compare to the new. 
The tabernacle might have looked like the real perfect tent, not made with hands, but it was as much like that real uh, tabernacle in heaven as this car is to the real sports car. They're just not the same. And here's the key. What makes the real heavenly tabernacle so much better is the sacrifice that made it pure. Jesus used his own blood to purify it, not the blood of bulls and goats. Animal sacrifice purified a created tabernacle, the shadow of the real, but only a perfect sacrifice could purify a perfect tabernacle. The animal sacrifice could allow ancient Israelites the ability to show that they believed God, but it only purified the outward signs. But what did Jesus do? Verse 14, he purifies our conscience, our insides from dead works to worship the living God. His sacrifice doesn't just purify the outward act, but right down to the core. Jesus has entered a better place, and Jesus mediates a better covenant. Covenant in verses 15 through 22. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus made the heavenly tabernacle pure by his death. And the author extends this idea of death to show that the way to a right relationship with God is found only through him. So to really understand what the author is trying to get at here, we have to take a step back from what we're, how we've been using the word covenant so far. See, at the heart of it, a covenant is really an agreement and a promise between people. The author so far, through the whole book, has been talking about the Old Covenant, capital O, capital C, Old Covenant. The capital O-C, Old Covenant, was an agreement between God and Israel. They would follow his law, and he would be their God. It was a conditional covenant. If they followed his law, there were uh, blessings. If they didn't follow his law, there were curses. Not every covenant works like that in the Bible. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham that was an unconditional covenant. There were no conditions. You will have land and seed and blessing. It was just a promise from God with no condition on Abraham. God's covenant with David that we heard about before was also an unconditional covenant. You will have a house. You'll always have a son on the throne. So there are covenants like that between two people and that are for two people that are living. Think of that as like a marriage covenant. Two people are alive, and that promise, that agreement is in place while they are alive. The promises between two people 
stay for as long as they're alive. But in verse 15, the author of Hebrews uses covenant a little differently to make an analogy, kind of an agreement. Uh, for this one, it's with a person that's, the person is alive. He makes an agreement or a covenant or a promise while he's alive, but it doesn't take effect until he's dead. We usually call that in English a last will and testament. In fact, uh, the Bible translators translate this word uh, will in verses 15 through 17, but it's the same Greek word for covenant. Verse 15 says there's a new covenant, a, a new relationship between two living people, God and humans. The new covenant allows those who are in this covenant to, to receive the promise of that covenant. There's an old covenant. It did nothing but condemn us because, of, because we'd violated that old covenant, because we had not kept its law. We had sinned. And even if we didn't violate that old covenant, it was temporary anyway. The new covenant frees us from the old covenant. And the new covenant, the author is saying, is like a last will and testament. It doesn't really take effect until the one that made it is dead. But the amazing thing about this new covenant is the one that died doesn't stay dead. He gets right back up and he's alive again. His sacrifice of his blood, his death on the cross, made the new covenant take effect. Moses spread the blood around the tabernacle and on the people to purify them. Death was the means of enacting the old covenant. Jesus died to enact the new covenant. See, Moses purified the temporary, the shadow of the reality in heaven with blood, the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus purifies the real heavenly tabernacle with his blood. Because without blood, the Bible says there is no forgiveness. That was the message of the Old Testament tabernacle, that you had to be right with God, you had to believe him, and you had to be purified by blood. You want to be right with God under the new covenant? You must believe his son, and you must be purified by blood. So Jesus entered a better place. Jesus mediates a better covenant. And ultimately, Jesus has a better way to God in verses 23 to 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear, before, uh, appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Once again, the author returns to the heavenly things that were purified by a better sacrifice. The tabernacle of the old covenant was the place where God met, but, but he was just there in the cloud and above the mercy seat. But here, in his fullness, he is met. Christ enters the real throne room 
and appears before the fullness of God. See, the old covenant, that old tabernacle was just a temporary place. But it's, and its effects were only temporary. Every year, the priest had to go back and do it again and again and again. Every year, he had to bring the blood of another bull. It was a cycle, and it showed that in that old covenant, that old sacrifice was insufficient. But Christ entered once into the new tabernacle, into the perfect tabernacle, for all the culmination of the ages to do away with sin uh, by the sacrifice of himself. The culmination of the age was Calvary. There on the cross, Jesus laid down his life. He purified the real heavenly tabernacle with his blood. It was just at the right time, not a moment too soon, not a minute too late. The way to God found at the foot of the cross is a better way. The old covenant was a shadow of what was to come. The sacrificial system was just a shadow of the, of the cross. But when Christ comes on the cross, that old is obsolete. See, the old covenant could never deal, could only deal with the outward. The new covenant did away with sin on the inside by the sacrifice of Jesus. The word translated here, did away with, is only found twice in the Bible, both of those times in Hebrews. And it refers to how the law is done away with. It's not put away, it's not put aside, it's done away with, never to come out again. See, the old covenant couldn't put away sin, it could only put aside sin. It could only cover it over for a while, and then every year it would have to be dealt with again and again and again. But the sacrificial system in the old covenant pointed to a perfect sacrifice that was coming. Nancy Guthrie, in her article for Crossway, describes the sacrificial system this way. Sacrifice in the Bible, however, is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of the blood, the feeling of the animal being pulled apart, the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering this sacrifice, knowing that it was your sin that made this death necessary. And imagine the frustration in knowing that you'll be back tomorrow or next week because you'll sin again. None of the animals offered in these sacrifices could in themselves take away a person's sin or truly pay the debt for sin. See, the sacrifices were temporary. They were visceral reminders of our sin, but they couldn't do anything about it. I don't know if you've taken a COVID test lately. Um, we're getting ready for a conference that I'm doing um, in a, uh, next weekend and uh, that my company puts on. And before I get up to do my presentation, I have to do a COVID test. That'll be joyous if you haven't done one yet. Uh, now, that COVID test does not keep me from getting COVID. It doesn't take away COVID. It only points out that I might have COVID. That's what the Old Covenant was like. A COVID test for the soul that says you're a sinner. It doesn't do a thing about it. Yeah, you could make a sacrifice, and in faith you could believe God, and God would have, be gracious towards you because of your belief in Him, but it wouldn't keep you from sinning again. And the sacrifice of yesterday does nothing about the sin for tomorrow. 
but the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, that sacrifice doesn't have to be done again and again and again. It was done once at the cross, and it was sufficient forever. It was in the right place at the right time by the right holy sacrifice, and it did away with sin. The author illustrates his point with a universal understanding of life. People die. People die once, and then that's it. And in the same way, Christ died once, and that was it for sin. And he extends this illustration just a bit more. People die once and face judgment. There's a reckoning at the end of life. Christ died once and bore the sins of many. This is an allusion to Isaiah 53, 12, where it describes this future suffering servant of Israel who would suffer for the sins of the people. It says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So for the ones who are waiting on Jesus, when they finally die and face judgment, what's God going to see? He will see sin gone. He will see Jesus instead. He will see the perfect sacrifice of his son that cast away sin as far as the east is from the west. And it continues, Jesus is coming again. When he comes the second time as the mediator of a better covenant, having purified the better temple, he will um, make a better way to God. He brings salvation. The sin is gone. Freedom has come. We can be found right with God. Oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. So what do you do with this message? I think there are two points of application. There's, for those of us who are already eagerly awaiting him, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus to take away our sin, my encouragement to you today is don't let anything else take that place. As we saw before, salvation has always come by grace through faith. As Aaron burned the sacrifice on the altar in the tabernacle, he knew that this sacrifice was not sufficient. He knew he was going to have to do it again and again and again. He believed God that a better sacrifice was coming, a permanent sacrifice. That old sacrifice pointed to a new and better one from the very beginning. That Old Testament sacrifice pointed toward the cross. We Christians in Romans 12 are called to make our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But just as the Old Covenant sacrifice didn't save, our life of sacrifice in Romans chapter 12 that we're called to does not save us. The old sacrificial system pointed to Christ. The new sacrifice that we make, the sacrifice of our life, a living sacrifice, points back to Christ. Neither one of those save. So what does Jesus want from you? He doesn't want, to pay, he doesn't want you to pay him back. He wants you to trust that he paid it all. That he was sufficient. In the film Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks' character, Captain James Miller, as he's laying there dying after saving Matt Damon's um, character, Private Ryan, he, he grabs onto Private Ryan and says to him, earn this, earn it. The words haunt Ryan 
all the way until he's an old man. At the grave of Captain Miller, Ryan says, I tried to live every day the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I earned all that you'd done for me. Then he stands and he looks at his wife with tears in his eyes and says, tell me I lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. See, he never really knew it. He never really knew if he earned it. Because let's face it, he wasn't. He didn't. There is no way Private Ryan could earn it. He couldn't live a good enough life to earn the sacrifice of Captain Miller. Jesus is not asking you to earn it. Unlike Captain Miller, Jesus knew that this kind of requirement of a sacrifice is impossible. You can't earn this. So why are you trying? Are you so worried that you might step out of line, that you might mess something up in God's grand plan, that you're, that you're scared to death of God and what might happen at the end of your life? When things start to come, un, become uncomfortable, do you question whether you stepped out of line and whether God is mad at you? You didn't. Jesus didn't sacrifice his own body and shed his own blood just so that you could keep trying to make yourself better. He is better. So what's the point of Romans 12? If you can't earn it, and he's not asking you to try to earn it, then why live a life of sacrifice? Why make your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord? Because just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and demonstrated a life of faith, they believed God and did these sacrifices, so too we live a life of sacrifice, pointing to the cross, pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus, because it demonstrates a life of faith. It doesn't save us, but it points to the one that did save us. So we need to live this life of faith. You don't have to earn it. You're just demonstrating that, that Jesus was sufficient. See, Jesus earned it through a better sacrifice, in a better, better tabernacle, as a part of a better covenant. The other night we were coming home from youth group and they were talking in that lesson about what happens when you die and what, what God's going to expect from you. And I could tell there was fear in my children's answers and the same fear that I had when I was their age. Was I good enough? Did I try hard enough? Did I, did I say the right things? Did I do the right things? Did I, did I misstep? Was I good enough for God? Now I knew from way back when I was in the nursery that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I was nervous. What if I'm not good enough? I'm not. You're not either. No one can ever be good enough. That's not the judgment at the end of the age. It's not to think, hey, did you do everything right? That's not what it's about. Jesus wants you to trust him. What is Jesus looking for at the end of the age? Did you trust him? Did you trust him? Did you trust him? That's what he wants from you. He doesn't want you to try and be good enough for him. He doesn't want you to earn it. He wants you to trust him. Christian, don't, uh, don't try to redo the sacrifice. Don't try to earn this. Instead, live your life as a sacrifice because of the one who did earn it. 
and know that his, that his sacrifice was sufficient. Another point of application for those of you that have not yet made this decision. You're not sure about Jesus. You're not sure that he actually did what he said he did or that his sacrifice made any difference. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 9 again. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. See, there is judgment coming at the end of life. Your sacrifices are insufficient. They are as insufficient as the blood of bulls and goats. They won't save you. All of the good you can do just won't make you right. You're making sacrifices in a created world with insufficient sacrifices. It doesn't matter how, tr- how hard you try. You can't be good enough. But there's a better way. As my friend Dave Verlocker said the other day when we were studying this passage, you can't get there from here. The chasm is too great. The sin is too deep. But the good news is Jesus earned it. He, he has taken away your sin. He has made a better sacrifice. He doesn't want you to earn it. He wants you to trust him. Today you can trust him by simply saying, Jesus, I know that your sacrifice was sufficient. I know I can't be good enough. And I'm trusting you to save me from my sin. If you've never done that, if you've never taken that step of obedience, my prayer today is that you would turn in faith to him. That you would see this. You may have been coming to church for a long time. You've sung all of these songs and you've sat in these chairs for a long time, but you've never actually said, you know what, Jesus, I believe you. You've sat with your parents or with your children or you've sat with your spouse or your friend and you thought, you know, I'm I'm here. That's got to be good enough. That sacrifice of coming to church on Sunday is not sufficient. The only one that is is Jesus' death on the cross. Embrace him today. Let's pray. Jesus, you are better. You made a better way through a better tabernacle, a better covenant, and a better relationship with God. We can trust you. You're not asking us to try and be good enough because you were sufficient. And when we try to put anything plus Jesus to be right with with God, then we are not accepting Jesus. So I pray, God, that you would help us to trust you more, to turn to you and not, not turn away from you and turn to other ways to try and be right, but to turn in faith to you again and again. For my friends here who have never put their trust in you, have never taken that step of faith, I pray that today would be the day and that they would turn in faith to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.